When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Just keep your mic, yeah, actually stand that way. Now turn around. <laughs> so the microphone's not pointing to okay. a lot of people. All right. Okay, yeah. great. We popped into the auditorium, and there was a man in a full-body bender from Futurama costume. We don't know why, and perhaps don't want to know why, because, you know, there is no possible reason for it that would be more satisfying than the mystery. Wait, you saw that? Yeah. Here? Today? Yeah, just in there. Wow. So we're here in the Isabel Bader Theater on the U of T campus, Mm -hmm. about to watch the sixth and final Ontario Liberal Leadership Debate. Uh, The Ontario Liberals are poised to select who is going to replace Kathleen Wynne and uh, battle it out against Doug Ford in the provincial election in two years. I'm Alison Smith, publisher of Queen's Park Today. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, news editor at Canada Land. You're listening to Wag the Doug, popping up at the Isabel Bader Theatre in downtown Toronto for the Ontario Liberal Leadership Debate. I have seen Chris Rock, Werner Herzog, and Eddie Vedder on this stage, and the Liberal Leadership candidates were not any of them. After our coverage of this endlessly exciting, non-stop, uh, rock'em, sock'em, Ontario Liberal Leadership Debate... Jonathan and I are going to give a our, our review, our thoughts on Run This Town, that Damian Lewis in a fat suit as Rob Ford movie, which comes out next week. And off to the debate. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. The fact is that Stephen Del Duca already has the overwhelming majority of delegates, committed delegates in the race. So barring his death, barring a sudden death, he is going to be the next liberal leader. This is some sort of needless performance uh, so that they don't lose their deposit on the theater, apparently. So that is why we're here, because I love this idea of a debate that requires no audience. Roger Ebert once said about the movie I Heart Huckabees, it was the first movie that didn't require an audience between the projector and the screen. And so... Uh, and we're here to see what that looks like, what the political equivalent of that is. Especially because this debate was uh, at the beginning of the race sort of touted as the pinnacle debate, right? This was supposed yeah. to be the centerpiece yes. of the campaign where everyone's truly battling it out. Of course, they uh, staged all of their delicate votes ahead of time. And now there's absolutely no stakes tonight whatsoever. Yeah. I, I really don't know what to expect. There is one way. Bar, not barring Del Duca's death that, that he could possibly lose. So all of the 1,200 or so delegates that he has assigned to him when they go to the convention, which is on March 7th, they're going to get pre-written out forms, voting slips that have his name on it already. But apparently there's about a five-second walk between wow. where they're handed the d- ballot and where they submit it. So if a good two-thirds of them decide to eat their ballot along the way, then oh. then we could have, we could really have a race. Two-thirds is like, would it be like, what, 600 of them or something? Sure, we could go with that. I'm yeah. not looking at the so numbers right now. but 600 people swallow their paper ballot, but they still wouldn't have another... Well, then they could I'm vote on the sure. second ballot, right? Then the second ballot is when it would open it up. Ah. If Del Duca loses on the first ballot because everyone eats theirs, ah. then they would have a second ballot and then the race could really get going. Let's uh, head in and see what other Futurama characters we see. This is going to be an exciting and thought-provoking evening. Tonight, you'll get a chance to hear each of our provincial liberal candidates give their views on the topics that are important to Ontario residents. Doug Ford told this entire province that he very clearly does not view Andrea Horbath and the Ontario NDP as the threat to him or his party winning a second majority government. He spent all of his time, while epic numbers of protesters were standing outside in Niagara region, telling the whole world that he's afraid of us. I believe that housing is a human right and it's not a privilege. We need to do a better job of working with, listening to, and supporting municipalities in solutions that make sense in their communities. Uh, we need to look at brownfield sites that are here in the province and, and, and mitigate the liability that a developer can put on by working with government to ensure that there's more opportunity. I'm really happy to know that the federal government, from what I understand, is reviewing the mortgage stress test. I've got a few more ideas I'll maybe talk about if I'm given another opportunity. And I have lots of ideas that I can talk about in the supplemental. Uh, so as Brenda said, I think Kate said it as well, uh, pretty much everyone on the stage is going to agree that we need more transit, which is a really fantastic thing. The difference between uh, the other men on this stage is that I have hair and I have three kids instead of two. <laughs> but... <laughs> 
And so I've proposed uh, a tax on Airbnb so that um, we can... I am going to have to stop you there. I apologize, but we are out of time. So if you were coming looking for a hard-hitting debate and the Elizabeth Warren, Michael Bloomberg moment, uh, I think you're leaving pretty disappointed tonight. Are we recording now? Yes. I've, I've been holding that in so we can get that on tape. Oh, my God. 120 minutes. Wow. It's like there's like that episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine where Miles O'Brien is captured by some aliens and he's tortured by, like, they make him feel like a thousand years have passed in, in this prison, but it's all in his mind and really only mm. been a few days. I don't think it's been longer. Um, yeah. I think it goes to show that grassroots democracy is very boring. The thing is, I don't think it has to be. I don't think it is. I think what, what's, what the, the real triumph here is that they somehow took an inherently interesting subjects and made them boring. That's the thing. Is like politics is, I mean, there's, there's undoubtedly an overemphasis on the theatrics, on the performance, on the presentation. I mean, it is at core of a policy and ideas. But you have to to be able to like step engage one people. inch outside of the box of the most basic proposal you could possibly imagine. Like let's build more affordable housing, for example. That a very long conversation about housing, but it went nowhere. Interesting I, or innovative or even, I mean, beyond something that they could have had but, the same conversation 14 years ago. But even when they did, like like you know Michael Coteau proposing you know, fair free transit. That's an exciting policy. How can you make an exciting policy sound boring? Well, we build a transit system that has the most reduced possible barriers. So you can walk in and walk out without any barriers, paying for parking, paying for transit. Now, it's very aspirational and it will be uh, a 10 year uh, approach. If you can't articulate ideas, you know, valid, interesting, daring, bold, policies that would help people's lives. So you can't articulate those in a way that would actually reach the people whose lives they would help, let alone, like, if you can't even get get to fucking get into us, let alone the actual people who aren't engaged, at best it's academic, but that's mean to academics, frankly. Some of them are very engaging. Did you note the weird transportation portion where they started talking about the possibility of automated vehicles. Somehow, Del Duca pivoted that to talk about how the former liberal government started letting people pilot or oh. firms pilot automated vehicles on Ontario roads, which, which is factually accurate. They did. And then somehow being like, because we're about progress. It was a weird... Uh, the enabling regulatory legislation, was that the term you used? First of all, I think as liberals, we need to remember and be proud of the fact that it was our last liberal government that actually introduced the enabling regulatory changes to permit the testing of automated vehicles. Um, uh, the one part of the time they, they actually seemed, or at least four of them seemed to wake up, was actually discussing I mean, what could broadly be termed identity politics, but we're discussing basically hate and bigotry in Ontario as manifested by the current government. Alvin Tejo stating in no uncertain terms Doug Ford is a bigot and then daring anyone to prove him wrong. The problem we have right now is that we have a bigot in the Premier's office. And I mean that. <laughs> prove me wrong. 
Uh, Mitzi Hunter uh, describing, you know, Doug Ford as uh, the most anti-women premier ever. Being one of the most anti-woman premier ever. Which is a bit of an, probably an overstatement, but uh, like they, they, seemed, they seemed to wake up and woke up, woke me up, and woke up the audience up. When they started to actually speak with passion and a simple and in fairly clear, direct terms, because frankly, it's, it's amazing that so much of this debate is about, you know, these are people who want to topple Doug Ford. It's really amazing that any given six people could have that as their goal and not be compelling or exciting or interesting about that. And so when they finally got to this handful of subjects, it felt like they, they found a sense of purpose, purpose? mission, passion, <laughs> for sure. In yeah, a way I mean, Mitzi Hunter has said that before. Um, she's kind of used it as, I would say, a little a push for some media attention three or four weeks ago, nearing the delegate portion of the of the leadership campaign. And she made makes good points. She didn't really get into them tonight, but uh, and this is stuff we haven't talked about on the podcast before, but it's worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. The Doug Ford government reduced funding for the Association of Ontario Midwives. They basically failed to enact a liberal government uh, gender discrimination pay law. They've uh, reduced funding for rape crisis centers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, So there are things like that that, I mean, she's right about, and that is an interesting angle to go on. Of course, she's done terribly in this this race, unfortunately, for her. Um, But you're right that they did, people did sort of uh, jump to attention a little bit at that moment. But then it was so, got so, like, technocratic and weird, like, the whole thing. Uh, Brenda Hollingsworth proposal for she's a person in the race by the way she's a person in the race uh, proposal for uh, fighting systemic racism in Canada in Ontario was to change procurement laws so that uh, you couldn't sell goods to the government unless you had a diversity plan within your company I mean, it's not the worst idea it's, it's, actually, the, it's, it's a decent policy I'm not sure it's like the top five things you could do to end systemic I racism know, but it's okay I know it's not terrible but it's just like again and she, she really didn't sell it we can no. add that to the list I mean, the problem with this, like, overall race and, you know, what will possibly very much hurt the Liberal Party when it comes to them trying to defeat Doug Ford is that nobody interesting entered this race, right? That's sort of what we're, like, they had no star candidate. People had hoped that after uh, the the, uh, federal election last fall, maybe some Ottawa... Uh, some folks, liberals from Ottawa, might come over here and jump in. Um, and, of course, that didn't happen. So it's just, it's it never really even got off the ground. And I don't know if that's because, we, you know, going up against Doug Ford as a politician might not be appealing to lots of people. Um, or whether there's just, like, a little bit of a lack of interest in high-profile or successful people just, you know, entering the political fray when the stakes are not as exciting as, you know, winning the Democratic primary in the United States. I don't know if it's necessarily a lack of interesting candidates, though it's not it's not the greatest crop, but, like, it is a party that encourages ambition, but possibly only ambition. I, th- I, may, I may have talked, you know, I may have mentioned this before, but unlike the NDP or the PCs, which, you know, people are tend to be bound by 
ideology. I mean, that's I don't mean that as a, a bad thing. I'm saying people are bound together. Like that's what the raison d'etre of a party is. They you have a very particular vision of what you think would be best for people, what you think would be best for society, and you want to take steps toward enacting that. Liberals have all you know, as the centrist party, have always been a curious thing where it feels like the most their defining factor, the most common trait, isn't an ideology, but rather a personality type. A particular like the person who would tell on you in elementary school. <laughs> uh, no, more like the person who would run for class president because yeah, they, they think well, they would be good at it, not because of what they want to do. Kind of what I mean. That's the thing: is the liberals when they it's when, like the goody two shoes party. I, I feel like that's giving them too much credit. I think it's when the liberals are almost nothing but whoever is a leader at a given time. When the liberals have no leader, there's no, there's basically nothing, there's no glue holding them together. They could be whatever they want to be. And frankly, they don't really stand for much. I mean, they, they want to make things better, but you know, not too much better. It's like good enough. You know, it takes a very particular type of leader to actually take the message status quo and make it inspire, status quo, but a little bit better and make it inspiring. Actually, actually one thing I do want to say and all of this talk, so they kept talking about how great it is that they were unlike the uh, PC party leadership that happened when Doug Ford was elected the leader. Uh, and there was a lot of battle and combativeness mm-hmm. between the different le- leadership candidates, which included uh, Caroline Mulrooney and, and Christine Elliott. Um, and that this time, they're not like that. We work together so hard and our staff does too. I will say, us reporting at, at Queen's Park there was a plenty of uh, different, I wouldn't know, you can't even single out one camp because they were all doing it, but but the staff from the various uh, leadership parties trying to throw other candidates under the bus with mm. different tactics and, and whispering in reporters' ears went on a lot for all this unity talk. Hmm. Oh, what's your favorite? Without naming names. Oh, it was all so boring. I hated it. Oh God! <laughs> even their even their back channel dirt on oh, each other was boring. It was so annoying. Yeah, oh, my no. God. <laughs> I don't know. So Del Duca moved. The Ontario Liberal Party had to downgrade to a smaller uh, office at headquarters after the last election when they lost all their seats and their money. And his campaign moved into the same office building, uh, a different floor of it. And then there was controversy over whether this meant that. They were working too closely with the party and, and whether they were allowed to talk in the hallways or not. And other campaigns were trying to, you know, make this into a scandal. But oh my God. of course, nobody cared. It's like, you know, he's actually he's, he's done actual like shit things in government. And yet that's what they sort of. Oh, my God. So I guess the question, you know, well, what they did amp a bunch of times during the race is to come to our leadership convention on, on March 7th or March 6th and 7th. I think they just want lots of members to go because they have to pay. And this party is very broke. Mm. Um, <laughs> so that, I think, was uh, the reason for that heavy push. Um, but should liberals in Ontario be slightly jazzed by a Del Duca win. And if you were to make the argument that this is a good thing for the party, I think the way you would make it is that how much Del Duca truly did kick everyone's butt in the raising of delegates. So he Mm -hmm. got, I was looking at the numbers, like 1,100 out of 2,000. So 55, 54%. In a six-way race. In a six-way race. So he he won by a landslide. 
what that means in practical terms for political people is that he has a good organization campaign. So what that means is if anyone's going to go up against Doug Ford organizationally, this guy does by far have the best mm. chance. And I think that might make liberals happy. I guess, I mean, th- you could imagine Doug Ford just like flicking him away, just talking over him or flicking him away on a stage. Doug Ford is massively unpopular, but he, he has charisma, which is like almost a gross thing to say. But I mean, frankly, the fact that so few Canadian politicians have that takes you kind of far. But or if we're talking about the horse race, I guess we're talking, you know, talking about Andrea Horvath. But once again, I've yet to have any specific reason to believe she would do any better in an election campaign than she has done in her last three, last three. I mean, I think what you speak to, we want to talk about the specifics of why Del Duca is a flawed, I think, rival to or flawed leader leader of a party is, yeah, that he is very much uh, caught up in the Kathleen Wynne scandals and the old Liberal Party. He was a minister under them. He did some dodgy stuff. And that's exactly what the people of Ontario voted the Liberal Party down to seven seats for and he is like a embodiment of that and Mm -hmm. that makes him easy as you said for doug ford to you know flick him off a stage what should i know about you um you're a writer pitch me dare i ask where you last worked i worked in the mayor's office Dave, I've been working for more than a year now. I just, I think that I could be really useful with this sort of thing. You know you don't get to be editor on day two just because you showed up at day one. Hello? Hello? Hi. You called, but said you wanted to meet in person about your story. We're not taking the story unless we can see the video. Can you imagine the uproar? Hey, sorry, do you work here? I'm just an assistant. So how does this video come your way? What am I looking at? So Jonathan and I are back in the studio to tell you about the newest piece in the Ford mythology, the Hollywood film Run This Town. It's a very, very generous use of the word Hollywood. It's a a Canadian film. Uh It's it's nominated for three Canadian Screen Awards. It actually happens to be the same number of Canadian Screen Awards that last year's Canadian Screen Awards are nominated for at this year's Canadian Screen Awards. Has at least one Hollywood star in it, that being Damian Lewis, who plays Rob Ford. In a fat yes. suit. Ostensibly, he's in there. Yeah. I mean, they could have chosen anyone. So the film tells the story of the Rob Ford crack tape scandal. It tells a story of the <laughs> Rob Ford crack tape scandal. That's, that's more apt. And f- sort of from the point of view of a journalist who is breaking the story Kind of. Actually, he just keeps getting scooped by other newspapers, which is very vague, uh, which who keeps beating him to it and how. Of course, one of the major problems right off the bat with this, which has been uh, much pointed out in early uh, conversations about the film, is that they chose a young male to play the role of the journalist that broke the story or saw the crack tape as opposed to a female like Robin Doolittle. There is a problem there, but it's not so much that they replaced Robin Doolittle with a man because emphatically the point is that this is a guy who is starting out and is not especially good or competent at the job at all. I think the question is not so much why, less why did they put him at the center of the crack story as why did the director 
implicitly believe that this man's story, this story of an incompetent, privileged male journalist, writer, director, believe that's more relatable than a story of a competent female journalist. I mean, the, the shortest, easiest answer is because, I mean, someone else optioned Robin's book. That doesn't excuse that at all. It's still a fucking problem and it's a pervades the whole movie. But it, there is that weird thing that there was an option for Crazy Town, which was Robin Doolittle's book. The studio had that or maybe still has it. There were scripts written, never got produced, almost certainly never will be produced. So basically he's told a, a worse, dumber story and uh, made a bad film out of a fascinating, riveting tale that, uh, you know, oh. entranced the whole world at one point in time and turned it into kind of a weird like manifesto on millennial yeah. malaise. It was kind of a lot of this guy just moping around yeah, and complaining a, about his job. And It's 100 percent as promised. There was an interview, a damage control interview the director did with The Globe a couple years ago after the whole Ben Platt casting thing came out. Um, in which, he, uh, the, well, the the Globe wrote... Ben you know, Platt plays the journalist. the journalist. Bram? Bram Shriver. Bram Shriver. Uh, the, Globe, the Globe, I think it was Simon Haupt, wrote, uh, Run This Town is loosely based on Tolman's brother Jason, who worked as an overnight anchor and reporter at 680 News and as a news writer at City TV before leaving journalism entirely. And the quote, it's about a guy who dreams of being an investigative journalist, doesn't know how to, so wishes that they were a part of something that they're not. That's an, I, I, I think that's a potentially interesting premise. But that's not what the, happens in the movie, really. I think he thinks that's what happens in the movie. I think he thinks that's what it is. And... And I do think there are many, potentially many good ways to tell the Rob Ford story. There aren't just like a straight ahead retelling of Crazy Town or a straight ahead retelling of what happened. And I sure, think you could tell it like from his family's point of view. That might be interesting. So many ways that it could be told. Um, I, I don't think it's bad. I think it's too interesting and ambitious to be bad in the same way that like mid to late period Spike Lee films are often too like this really interesting messes. And I'm talking about now about things like you probably no one's even heard of, like She Hate Me and Miracle at St. Anna. Really minor shit. But um, the big one of the big issues is that the whole thing seems anachronistic in its mode of storytelling and rather dated. I mean, all confusing, like for someone who knows this story very well, it was hard to follow the plot. I thought at times like time periods kind of jumped apart. The opening sequence with oh, the no staff sense. made no sense. They had no sense. all of these people sitting around Toronto City Hall in the councillor's seats, these young people, and it turns out you figure out later that they're all staffers to Rob Ford or various jobs in the mayor's office yeah, or in or City there, Hall. It, it's very unclear. Yeah, that the scene makes, the, makes, makes, makes no and sense. And they're kind of debating office expenses as, as if they're counselors, but like... But they're not. They're not and, and if you don't know that they're like, if you don't recognize like, hey, that's not Counselor Mahavik, you, you, you know, how many people know who will ever... I mean, how many people will ever see this movie beer, in the first place? So you but, have an idea that they're not yeah. like, that they're just goofing off, but to what end? And then they weirdly kind of throw back to that when they're talking about office expenses <sighs> later. I don't know. It was it's weird. Like, I can't hate a movie 
that tries to make a dramatic, intense title sequence with lots of split screens and lots of flashy words out of a totally unremarkable and inconsequential and wholly forgotten Councillor Fletcher's speech about office expenses from God knows what year. I thought that was so bizarre. It makes no sense. It will mean nothing to anyone. It doesn't <laughs> no. mean anything, even mean anything to me. There's so it's... much crazy Rob Ford footage or related to Rob Ford footage that happened in the city hall chambers. And this is just not it. You can't even really tell what they're talking about. No. Uh, I mean, I've so much. So, I mean, Damian Lewis as Rob, that, that's the other thing is in every respect, that is exactly what you would imagine. I mean, the movie is the well-meaning but fundamentally misguided horror show that the Rob Ford story deserves. He doesn't try to do an impression of Rob Ford. And no, he just that's... speaks in like a Canadian kind of hoser accent that it's, was not good. It's like like whatever. I mean, in early reviews compared it to Fat Bastard, uh, which I think, frankly, I think um, Rob Ford was more like a Mike Myers character than it's, he's played here. Well, his eyes are too sunken into his face. It was. Like, it was. That's not, the weirdest. No, part. if it doesn't, it doesn't have to look like Rob Ford. It, frankly, if you try to recreate Rob Ford exactly, it wouldn't work. But it doesn't look like a real human. No, yeah. And that's where in a movie that is otherwise trying to be grounded, it plays like a whole other thing inserting itself into that movie. And I don't think the metaphor of this cartoonish figure walking into this real world is intentional. No. Um, To the extent this movie will be remembered in the future at all, I assume it will be uh, as this sort of an infamous freak show where screen caps of of Damian Lewis as Rob Ford will show up in shitpost memes the same way that uh, Dana Carvey as the Turtle Man and Master of Disguise does now. If I haven't made this clear yet, I did not like this movie. Um, I have all the time in the world for like white collar crime mystery movies or journalist movies or movies that have like a slow build to like find out a secret. Honestly, one of my favorite genres. This tried to be that, wasn't that. And, like, honestly, if I was watching this at home, I probably would have turned it off halfway through. Like, I was very bored. I mean, no, no one will ever see it in a theater, so you don't have to. Okay, maybe that, maybe that's too mean. Yeah, I, I had the very odd experience watching this movie of realizing that I think the main character is partly based on me. Well, yeah, that's true. That was very odd. I, I, I Sorry, I meant to start with this because I guess it does color my feelings about it. But at one point, uh, he describes uh well he, he for whatever reason he he's a guy who writes best of list for a newspaper that job doesn't actually Which exist they non-stop but, talk about how many times is the word listicle used in that film probably 25 but at Sorry, a certain point <laughs> after you know a certain amount of time in the job he says he tells his friend that his responsibility he's got new responsibilities which include reverse engineering rob ford's schedule by going through posts on twitter facebook and instagram and I, you know, I was racking my brain. Like, has anyone else ever described that work or been described as doing that in those words or at all? I'm pretty sure I'm the only person who did that in any systematic fashion and used those exact words in a number of different contexts. Um, my oh, first... like if you were being interviewed or describing yourself? Yeah. I mean, I first wondered, like, fuck, is that what Robin wrote in her book? And I checked it. It, it wasn't. But no, I, I used it in an hour article, and I it's in my Facebook profile, LinkedIn. But I wouldn't expect you to see it there. Like, I, yeah, no, I mean that's there's no uh, yeah that that's no that was you. I thought of you immediately, and um, I guess that would be one of the very specific parts of the film. Yeah, I would say. 
I'll give it, okay, the part that I actually thought was the most successful was the sexual harassment, um, how that part is told when the Rob Ford character sexually harasses the uh, female staffer and she later has a conversation. She's And that scene's well done. So Nina Dobrev actually plays that character and she's, again, a Hollywood uh, actress and is good at acting. So I but think that's Canadian probably, enough that they would get the they could, they would get the points toward the tax credits, right? I don't know. Sorry. Okay. But she's she's a good actress. So I think that's probably why this part stands out. And, you know, how humiliated she is because it happens in front of a bunch of people and then how she's disappointed in her boyfriend because he never doesn't stand up for her, doesn't tell Rob Ford to apologize. And she kind of says, you know, you just made me another woman or another incident that we had to bury. And she's upset with him for that. And I thought that part was 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 well done. Back to the millennial manifesto part. Like, I was just trying to see, like, what can you, like, extrapolate from the Rob Ford story that you, that would shine any sort of light on this millennial, you know, struggling millennial or struggling privileged millennial story that he's trying to tell. And I feel like they have, like, a teeny glimmer of insight kind of at the very end when he mentions... Basically, like politicians are kind of screwing the next generation. It's like in the middle of a speech, and it kind mm. of alludes to that. And I don't know if there the director wanted to make a tie between politics in the last thirty years and and maybe even the more more recent history, how politicians have you know that can suck, and like that's why things are bad but i don't know if that's even too much of a stretch i did wonder if he if he at any point he or anyone involved in the movie had reached out to olivia gondak who's basically the character who's fictionalized as the uh, nina dobrev character um i don't know without without assuming one way or the other i you know you could i could imagine that at worst that this could effectively re-victimize her in a way that you know it, in trying to tell a story from her perspective actually Maybe it doesn't help, but I don't know. I just I guess, I guess it, but but maybe it maybe it's done with her full knowledge and consent, and maybe that's exactly how she would like the story told. I don't know, but I guess just because of because of that, because the movie skates around, because yeah, the way Hugh's so close to real life in some respects and diverges in others, which is fine. That's pretty much what once again pretty much what all art does. Uh, but you do find, or at least you know, Trontonians, and I don't know who else will ever see this movie. Uh, you do find yourself thinking and reflecting on those gaps in those spaces and the choices that were made in terms of which things to reflect faithfully and accurately and which things to to fictionalize. Well, right. Why recreate that um, uh, I'm more than enough to eat at home press conference and scene? I guess it is because they want to talk about the sexual or alleged sexual mm-hmm. harassment in the office. But then, oh, he's know, dead. We don't have to say alleged anymore. Okay, well, oh, we watch, <laughs> but there's a few scenes of the journalist watching the actual crack tape, and you don't get to, they don't recreate that. You I just, was like, so get to hoping that his... would have been such a great gift for later because you can't gift the actual crack tape. That'd be awful. But if, if we had Damian Lewis recreating yeah. the crack tape, and I was really hoping we would, that would be such a wonderful thing to gift. Well, and you just sort of get to see like the back of the phone and his eyes light up as he watches it. Like cinematically, that's 
pro- that's more effective, but it, it just would have been very I mean, if, entertaining to see him, see it recreated. I was wishing it was like a better actor behind those eyes that was giving me something. It was mostly just him looking. Oh, that's I why just, it would have been so entertaining, right? <laughs> I just the idea of them trying to restage it would have just oh my god, it would have been sublime. I mean, I like your take that this yeah not so great movie <laughs> that's just kind of messy and all over the place and. Uh, <laughs> doesn't really achieve much uh, is a good what did you say semblance of just the Rob what it's the Rob Ford saga story deserves just, yeah, it's, a story deserved. <laughs> it's weird and bad in many of the ways you expect but also in other ways you don't expect and <laughs> it goes the appearance goes where you expect but the way it gets there is still surprising and still disappointing that's it <laughs> And that was Wag the Dog, a pop-up podcast about Ben Platt play, play, playing me, apparently. I'm Allison Smith. You can find me on Twitter at, at Queen's Park Today. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, and you can find me on Twitter at Goldsby, or apparently spending the next 20 years shooting a real-time version of Merrily We Roll Along with a truth link later. This episode was produced by Kevin Sexton, who we feel bad for dragging out to the liberal leadership debate. When Kevin arrived at the liberal leadership debate uh, a little earlier than us, a a volunteer here, when he said he wanted to uh, register, he meant as media and they thought as a liberal. And they got very excited uh, to try to sign him up. (laughs) a A new nice boy liberal for us? That would have made someone's day. It would have... Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please support us at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Lisa Kudrow was fired from the set of Frasier. Charles Schultz was told he'd never make a living scribbling. Missy Elliott was dropped by her label. And Rita Moreno couldn't land a role of substance for seven years after West Side Story. The stories of famous names, their lesser-known rejections, and the insights those rejections provide. We regret to inform you, The Rejection Podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. 